Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast from BOI Charity that explores the important ideas and intellectual trends of our times. In this, the sixth podcast in our series on race and racism, which was the theme of our recent Academy Online event, we feature a talk that reflects on the controversial 1915 film, The Birth of a Nation. The film is renowned for its racist portrayal of black people and a celebration of the Ku Klux Klan. And remarkably, it was the first film ever to be shown at the White House. More than a century after its release, it continues to excite huge controversy. But how has the interpretation and imputed meaning of the film shifted and changed over that period? The talk is by Kunle Olalode, director of Voice for Change England, a former creative director of Rebot Productions and a member of the African Odyssey Programming Board at BFI. Birth of a Nation, the film and subject matter that we're about to delve into, is something that I've been slightly obsessed about over 20 years. I did a, a film festival for a campaign called Workers Against Racism way back in the early 90s. And one of the films that I wanted to screen was Birth of a Nation. At that time, I found that it wasn't easy to get hold of and more problematic was actually the length of the film. Being three hours long, um, it wouldn't have exactly fitted into the format that I was trying to pull together. However, many years later, um, much years of research, I did get the opportunity to introduce the film during its 100th anniversary at the British Film Institute. And at that time, and even today, I would say that I'm still amazed and somewhat perplexed that this film, uh, this black and white silent film still holds an amazing level of power to provoke a reaction, both positive and negative, right up to the present day. A film that people hate to love, or as one writer put it in an article, the worst thing about this film is how good it is. And what makes it so good? I think Ella has already alluded to the question of technical innovation. But I think that whilst we can admire its uh, technical advances, the major banner of allying this film is one, of course, of its relationship to its depictions of race, uh, and in particular, race relations in America post the Civil War. In many ways, the echoes of the debate around this film uh, can be seen very much this year in the discussion around Gone with the Wind. And I will come on to say some words on that towards the end of this introduction. Silent film legend Charlie Chaplin called Griffiths the teacher of us all. President Woodrow Wilson endorsed the film as like writing history with lightning. My only regret is that it is all so terribly true. The policy of congressional leaders wrought a veritable overthrow of civilization in the South in their determination to put the white South under the heel of the black South. Woodrow Wilson, that quote is taken from, put that out and then later uh, rescinded it and said that it never came from him. 
but it gives you a tenor of the film's ability to both excite and polarize at that time. More recently, people like Scott Simmons in his book on Griffiths has said, it's difficult to find a work of 20th century popular art that has shifted so completely from one that reports to tell us, convinced and moved its original audiences to one that now seems to fail audiences on every ethical, emotional, and perhaps even artistic level. So this film is not uh, uh, to be taken lightly in terms of both his historical significance and its importance to critics. In 2015, as I said, I uh, got the opportunity to do the introduction to the film at the major screening of uh, the film at the BFI at South Bank. To see it on a big screen with uh, re-digitized imaging and uh, the massive speakers in NFT1, you really do get an insight into what it must have been like for people seeing this film for the first time in 1915. If we look at the technical aspects of it, films up until that point had been made around about the 20 minute mark. This film ran, as I said earlier, for three hours. It was made for $100,000, an unprecedented sum of money in terms of filmmaking. And specifically, when it was launched in 1915, it packed out cinemas all over America. It was also shown abroad in over 200 territories uh, between 1915 and 1931. It's estimated to have taken upwards of $18 million by uh, 1931. And by the outbreak of the Second World War, it was estimated to have been seen by 200 million people worldwide. And yet there I was in 2015 expecting the Oscars, or the Hollywood Screen Guild, or some of the award ceremonies to actually acknowledge the film's existence. In fact, it was completely expunged from any recognition. And indeed, even academics and intellectuals in America downplayed it. The first major conference looking at the film actually was held by University College London. Uh, and I remember attending that and meeting all these academics from America who'd come over to um, the UK to have the discussion that clearly they couldn't have in America. Likewise, there were issues raised about greenings, private screenings of the film being attempted in places like Los Angeles in the early noughties, where theatres had been threatened with being firebombed uh, if they screened the film. So for me, the, the controversy lingers. Now, I've talked to uh, many film critics and writers who've explored the, the reasons why this is so. And I think as we'll go on to discuss, perhaps, it touches on many of the issues that are germane both to this conference and to the wider debates around race that are occurring today, both in terms of the arts and in politics. Conventional history points to the film's outstanding cinematography, its introduction of new camera techniques, particularly moving action shots, emotional close-ups, and split-level screen melodrama. But most importantly of all, it's the hugely effective landscape battle scenes, which armed with the greater knowledge of techniques from Griffith's earlier work, where 
he honed his techniques in small film production companies like Bioscope. He was able to develop a whole range of techniques, which he then brought to this major project. The film itself, in terms of its story, is set in the period of the pre-Civil War, and it settles on a notion, really, that we look at it through the eyes of two families, one in the South, one from the North, who are brought into conflict by the outbreak of the Civil War. Essentially, without giving too much away, the subtext is basically the South didn't lose the war because it didn't fight hard enough or because it uh, didn't have the right uh, moral values. Essentially, it was betrayed by the carpetbaggers and industrialists of the North. And the key aspect of the plot is really a question of looking at how the South wins the war on the screen. It may have lost the war in reality, but it's, it's about a whole series of post-Civil War theories that are brought to the screen through a play initially developed by the Reverend Thomas Dixon, who was Griffiths' partner in the enterprise of the film. Dixon had, in the early part of the 20th century, had uh, drafted this play called The Klansman, on which the film is based, and a second play called The Leopard. And using storylines from both these plays, they constructed Birth of a Nation. The Reverend Thomas Dixon, an ardent uh, white supremacist, and uh, certainly uh, somebody who was far-sighted enough to understand the value commercially of controversy was probably the perfect, uh, in many respects, ally of Griffiths. The Klansman, when it appeared in uh, Broadway initially, Thomas Dixon knew and was very conscious about its racial content and how it would go down. In fact, so cynical was Dixon that he actually paid black people to demonstrate outside the theatre to ensure that the play got maximum publicity. So the birth of uh, modern media, and if you like, um, film, was uh, developed through the knowledge combined between Griffiths and Dixon. And certainly when they made Birth of a Nation, they had one eye on the box office. For the screen rights, I think they paid something like $12,000. But uh, in the aftermath of agreeing that uh, contract, Griffiths could not pay Dixon, and so gave him uh, 25% of the rights to the film, which, as it turned out, was probably a bad move on uh, Griffiths' part, as, of course, the film went on, as I indicated, to make a huge amount of money, went on to become before the Second World War, at least, probably the number one box office smash. But having said that, the immediate reaction to the film when it came out, not surprisingly, was met with protests. And I think that uh, it's important to um, look at the birth of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People alongside the development of this film. In fact, the association had come to, into existence in 1900, but its first national campaign of any type was actually aimed at Birth of a Nation.
the way that the images of black people were depicted in the film, the historical revisionism of the film and the juxtaposition of the historical inaccuracies along with the quite beautifully filmed and technically brilliant composition, again, meant that this film couldn't be taken simply as something that would be easy to protest against. Indeed, despite its national mobilization, the National Association of Colored People eventually had to give up as the film continued to grow in terms of its audiences and the knowledge. And, and we should say here that it wasn't just in America that the film grew in terms of knowledge and popularity. In, throughout, for example, the British colonial territories, film was a, a huge smash. And as I said, over 200 million people worldwide actually saw the film. In terms of responses beyond the protests that occurred in New York, Boston, Los Angeles, indirectly, as I say, enhancing the publicity of the film and its popularity, a more positive response came from embryonic black filmmakers like Oscar Michaud, George Johnson and the Lincoln Film Company, who attempted to make their own films to refute Griffith's depiction of black people as feral, lascivious, and lustful illiterates, drunk with power and indulging in legally sanctioned excess and wanton violence. The particular film of Oscar Michaud, which also a silent film in 1919, the production of Within These Gates, which has uh, been shown, I think, on, on Channel 4, was a direct rebuttal to the film, but in a sense, still doesn't really capture all of um, the kind of power of what Birth of a Nations delivered. And I think most importantly, more contemporary critics of the film have gone further. Film historian Donald Bogle has essentially seen the film as giving us the full complement of black film stereotypes, highlighted in a, a kind of classic interpretive history of black representation in the American cinema, which he explores on the screen, the characterization of what he refers to as the Tom, the Coon, the Tragic Mulatto, the Mammy, and the Buck. The Buck being the character Gus, who in the film is the protagonist that attempts to woo the lead character, lead female character, and at the one of the kind of pinnacle moments of the film is faced with the prospect of being raped by the buck Gus and decides that rather than being raped, she will preserve the honor of the self and jumps to her death. It's one of the seminal scenes in the film. So I think Bogle's work in his book is interesting because it's obviously on a contemporary level was then taken up by a number of other protagonists who come after. Certainly, Robert Townsend, in his film, Hollywood Shuffle, expands on uh, those characterizations. And for those that are uh, like me, film buffs will probably uh, reference also Spike Lee's film, Bamboozled, which again, looks at the question of blackface and the uh, depictions of black characters in uh, Hollywood uh, movie making, which 
brings me on to the contemporary discussion that has happened around film censorship. Lee, earlier this year, in response to a discussion about the removal of Gone with the Wind, in the discussion around that was asked how he felt about the film. And I think Lee's um, response, um, and as an individual, is quite interesting because when Lee uh, saw Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind at film school in New York, he um, was very critical of the films. In fact, he went away uh, having seen uh, Birth of a Nation, uh, disgusted by the racism in it, and went to, and filmed a five-minute critique, which he made available to his fellow classmates. The principal of the film school was so outraged, they wanted to um, kick him out of the school. Lee, I think, understood fully that the idea of just looking at film uncritically and not being able to look at its context and the way that it's constructed was important for him. What he said was that when they showed the film when I was at NYU, they left out the fact that at the time the Klan was dormant and this film brought life back to the Klan, which directly ended up killing black folks. But that was not taught. When you put stuff in historical context in fourth grade, we had a class trip. They reissued Gone with the Wind. Seeing Hattie McDaniel and Butterfly McQueen, myself and other classmates were cringing. Lee continues, but no one told us that you've got to talk about this stuff. I don't think it should be banned. That's just my opinion. So the question of the disavowing of Gone with the Wind and Birth of a Nation, I think similarly falls in line with the debate of tearing down statues. Should we erase a shameful part of history for the sake of being progressive? Should we disassociate ourselves with the past and pretend it never existed? In relation to the D.W. Griffiths Award, the Hollywood Green Actors Guild, that award no longer exists. In fact, it's now just known as the Screenwriters Award. Griffith's name was removed. In terms of the 100th anniversary of the film, it was not marked in any way in any significant film institution or association. And we are now at a point where it seems that we're going through another discussion, not just about Birth of a Nation, but its accedents, such as Gone with the Wind, have now become the subject of discussions censorships and bans in their own right. So I think that the question for us is really about how we actually deal with the past and how we actually put things into context and address them without actually censoring them. How do we make younger audiences understand that banning things is not a solution to understanding them? Not everybody agrees with that. The curator of TCM, turn the classic movies has gone through quite a lot of um, angst in relation to looking at some of these older films. Indeed, I'll just finish by giving you this quote from Professor Jacqueline Stewart, who runs the Silent Nights on uh, Turner Classic Movies. And she says, day after day, I scroll through posts decrying the killings of Ahmed Arbery, Renola Taylor and George Floyd. For weeks, video after video showed the escalating protests against police brutality and the brutal treatment of protesters by police. It seems inappropriate 
to share shots glorifying Hollywood's golden age in this moment of mourning and mobilization. Moreover, the classic films we showcase on Turner Classic Movies have played a major role in perpetuating the racist beliefs that devalue black lives and normalize the use of excessive force against black people. And that in many ways, that quotes about how the past has actually shaped the present is I think a really important area of debate and discussion for this weekend. Thanks. You've been listening to a talk by Kunle Olalode on the film The Birth of a Nation, which was recorded at the Academy Online event Race and Racism. The next episode, which will conclude this series of podcasts, will feature Anaya Folleraniman and Professor Frank Faraday reflecting on the new elite and the institutionalisation of identity. Make sure you don't miss any of the podcasts in this series by subscribing to Ideas Matter, on your favourite podcast feed. And for more details of the Academy event where this lecture was recorded, and to access a series of recommended readings to help you explore the themes in greater depth, have a look at the accompanying notes to this podcast, or visit the Academy at our website, theboi.co.uk. Finally, if you're able to give us a financial donation to support this podcast or any of the BOI Charities projects, then head over to our website and hit the donate button. Many thanks. Thanks.